I know that God is, and I know that he loves me. It, uh, it sure is wonderful to be here this weekend at this Big Book Study Weekend in Cincinnati, Kentucky, if you know what I mean. Uh, I would like to thank uh, Rob and Liz and the rest of the committee. for uh, Rob, over a year ago, asked me to come here to talk, and I was just, I've been, I try not to get too excited, but I've been excited about this weekend uh, for over a year, and I think Is that better? Can you hear me now? Can you turn it up back there at all? No, it's on. Can you hear me now? Okay, I'll have to talk louder. It'll be a shorter talk, but I'll talk louder. I want to thank Rob and Liz and the rest of the committee for having me here. I've been excited about this for a long time. Uh, and I think you'll see why as, as my talk goes on. It's a very special weekend. Uh, I just want to start off with a little story about a little alcoholic. As a matter of fact, it was, uh, it was Rob. And you might not know this about your husband, but a number of years ago, he went to Memphis, Tennessee to, uh, to go to a roundup and, uh, the conference there. And when he was on the plane, one of the stewardesses came up to uh, Rob and, and, uh, said, Mr. Presley, Elvis, here are the tickets that you wanted uh, for the concert tonight. And Rob looked at him and said, what are you talking about? I'm not Elvis. Get away from me. And so he got into the airport, and a limo driver walked up to him and said, Elvis, your car awaits you just outside the door. And Rob looked at him and said, what is wrong with you people here? I'm not Elvis. I'm not here for that. I'm not Elvis. Rob finally got took a cab, went to his hotel room. And about 9 o'clock that evening, uh, he was just getting ready to turn in. And a fellow knocked at the door, and Rob opened the door. And before Rob could say anything, here this man was standing with two beautiful young women. And he looked at Rob and said, Elvis, these two ladies are here to keep you company tonight. And Rob said, well, thank you. Thank you very much. (laughs) My name is Blaine. I'm a very grateful alcoholic. Because I am submerged in the fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous and by the grace of the power that I found in the God-inspired 12-step program as contained in the book called Alcoholics Anonymous and nowhere else, I haven't had drink alcohol for 5,300 days today. For this, I am profoundly grateful and I always will be. You see, folks, it's nothing short of a miracle because I don't have a very good track record staying physically sober on my own. Uh, I, there was a time when I couldn't get two days back to back, so it is a miracle, and we call it Alcoholics Anonymous, uh, and that's what we're here for this weekend. I uh, came to Alcoholics Anonymous at the age of 20. I know some of you are looking at me and you're thinking that must have been about a year and a half ago, but really, <laughs> a cruel bunch of people we have here. <laughs> That was in 1980, and there wasn't a lot of young people in AA in 1980. Uh, I was the youngest person at every AA meeting I went to for the first four years that I was in AA. So I know what it's like to be very young and to be an Alcoholics Anonymous and trying to stay sober. Uh, I came to Alcoholics Anonymous for the wrong reasons. I was not willing to do whatever it was going to take in order to stay sober, and I went back drinking three more times. Uh, the first time I got drunk, I was 14 years old. I drank. You know, we've been talking this weekend with some folks, and Canadian beer is a lot stronger than the beer here in the U.S. Uh, the, uh, 
when I was 14, I drank, I was at a party and I drank four of these extra old stock beer. They're about 7% alcohol each. And I'm, you know, I was as tall as I am now and about 120 pounds. So uh, I had to get up and go get rid of that four beer. And I walked into the washroom and I will never forget what happened to me. I looked in the mirror and my face was glowing and I was on fire. And I looked in there and said, wow, this must be what normal people feel like. I said, I want to feel like this all the time. And uh, I came to believe that night that God created me about four beers short of normal. If I, if I could have stayed there, everything would have been okay. But I couldn't. My drinking career spanned seven years. I only drank for five out of those seven years. You don't have to drink a long time to be an alcoholic. And uh, you don't have to drink a long time to want to get sober. I always like to tell people it's not the years, it's the mileage. And uh, <laughs> you get a lot of mileage on. It doesn't take us long to get here. Especially true for women. Um, but it was true in my case as well. Uh, I want to tell you the last time I went back drinking. I uh, had been in the fellowship. I had been sober, physically sober, for 14 and a half months. And every time the idea to drink would come, I'd block it with willpower. As you saw this weekend, I'd say a little prayer, and I'd go to an AA meeting. Block it with willpower, say a little prayer, and go to an AA meeting. After 14 and a half months, uh, I was 120 miles out of town near my wife's hometown, uh, there was no meeting, I didn't think to pray, and my willpower was gone. And some people hurt my feelings. And uh, what happened, my wife comes from a family of 13 kids. And they were all sitting with their boyfriends and girlfriends at about three social, or, or it was a drinking social, kind of unique to Manitoba. When people are getting married, we have a social, it's called a social. We buy all the booze we can. We invite all the alcoholics to come there and buy the booze, and then we give that money to the bride and the groom. So I'm at this drinking social I really had no business being at. And my wife's family didn't like me very much. And there was three of these banquet tables together, and they were all sitting there. And she got up to go and sell an arm's length of tickets, and they looked down the table and saw they were sitting with me, and they got up and walked away. <laughs> you know, I mean, it hurt my feelings. I'm just a sensitive guy walking around in a room full of barbarians, you know, and they just hurt me all the time. Every room I go into, I'm getting hurt. I had not done the steps. I had not had the personality change sufficient to recover from alcoholism. I'd just been hanging out in the fellowship. And my mind said to me, because I hadn't done that, the obsession to drink had not been expelled from my mind. And my mind said, Blaine, you'd feel much better if you had a double rum and coke. And I said, I believe you're right. And uh, <laughs> I tell you, I love the way Joe sometimes talks about physical sobriety without, you know, sobriety without recovery is very painful, especially for people like me. And Joe talks about how the longer you're sober, the, the tighter and tighter the muscles in his shoulders would get and in his neck. And that's exactly the way it was for me. After 14 and a half months, I was pretty much wound up, if you know what I mean. And uh, I walked over to the bar. And while I'm walking to the bar, I'm saying to myself, now, Blaine, uh, you're only going to have a couple tonight, right? I said, that's right. Now, you're not going to get drunk, right? I said, that's right. I said, uh, you know, you used to drink so much because you're all screwed up, but you've been going to them AA meetings for so long now. You're not that way anymore. I said, that's right. And I said, besides, you're not really physically allergic to alcohol. That's just something those old bald-headed farts tell each other in AA to, to, <laughs> to talk themselves out of drinking. And I, I am slowly becoming an old, bald-headed fart in Alcoholics Anonymous. Uh, that's what happens. I guess if you don't drink and don't die, sometimes your hair falls out. And uh, 
I walked up and had a double rum and coke. The obsession took me to the first one. Then the allergy kicked in. I was craving more alcohol, and in 20 minutes I was outside the side of that building with two double rum and coke looking to see if anyone could see me, and I was putting them down as fast as I could possibly. That's not social drinking, folks. That is not. I've talked to some social drinkers, and they don't have an evening like that ever in their life. And uh, six months to the day later, I lay on my bathroom floor dying of alcoholism. I didn't say I have a double rum and coke plane, so you, you're young. In six months, your young bride of three months could take you to the hospital, and they'll shoot you full of stuff, and you'll come home and hallucinate for four or five hours in her arms. I didn't say that, but, you know, that, that's, the, that's the truth. I said I was just going to have a couple. Just wanted to take the edge off. My problem was I had not done the steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. Uh, my last three months of drinking were not fun. I never want to repeat them. I never want to forget them. Uh, on November 28, 1982, that was my D-Day. That was my Waterloo. Uh, that was Grey Cup Day in Canada, and that's the big football day in Canada. And uh, I was at this Grey Cup party, as I always was, and, and uh, it's funny, you know, I sobered up and I, re- I never missed a Grey Cup party all the years I drank. I sobered up and realized I don't even like football. I, you know, you know, I, now I don't mean to alienate all the men in the room, but I wasn't there for the football. I was there for the drinking. And everything was an excuse to drink, really. And when I look back and see it honestly, 14 years and some months ago, everything in my life was just a mask to enable me to drink, no matter what I did. Though I loved some of the things like fishing and camping and etc. Uh, it was all just pretend so that I could drink and have an excuse to do so. Like I wish it was Christmas, you know, 365 days a year, because Christmas you can have a drink before noon and nobody's going to bat an eye at it, you know. <laughs> and uh, that's the way that I was. So I know what happens if you don't do the steps and just hang out in the meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous. You know, and there's there's people that were just like me all over the place in Alcoholics Anonymous. Now, it's not in my nature to be critical, uh, but it seems there's people in AA, as I was, uh, that just, they, they don't do the steps. And they, they go to meetings, and they just seem to do fine. They seem to do real good right up to the time we get drunk. We, <laughs> we always do really good right up to the time we get drunk. Because, folks, if you would have told me five minutes before I took that drink on November on May 28, 1982, that I was going to get drunk tonight, I would have said, you're crazy, man. You are nuts. I've been an Alcoholics Anonymous now sober 14 and a half months. I'm never going to drink again. I didn't even see it coming. And that's the problem with the obsession. If I could see it coming, if we could see it coming, we wouldn't do it. But I don't see it coming. I have a strange mental blank spot, and I'm totally powerless. When the idea to drink came to my mind, my mind went into a whirlwind, and I couldn't even remember why I came to Alcoholics Anonymous to begin with. I remembered after, but it was too late. Uh, Before, I could not remember why I even came here. And that's the kind of obsession that I came to Alcoholics Anonymous with. I know what it's like to feel like your skin is crawling after months of sobriety. You want to drink so bad. And I would could, I would have at that time sworn to you I was physically craving alcohol. But the alcohol had been out of my system long past 72 hours. That's how obsessed with drinking alcohol I was. I just It was the only time I felt good. If the only time you feel good is when you're drinking alcohol, why would you ever want to not drink alcohol? So I had this conflict going on through the late 1970s as I was when I, I mean, I was just a teenager. Uh, 
you know, I knew that drinking, I didn't get in trouble every time I drank, but almost every time I got in trouble, I hadn't been drinking, or I was on my way to go drinking, or, I, you know, something. It always was revolved around that. I see that today. I couldn't see it then. Uh, so I knew that, that somehow this was wrapped up. Alcohol was a problem. But if it's the only time you feel good, how can you give it up? And so I came back to Alcoholics Anonymous. Uh, what happened that night was on May, uh, November 28th, 1982, was I, oh, all hell, all hell broke loose inside of me. Not outside of me, but inside of me. I think God gave me a moment of clarity and I saw the truth about my alcoholism and where I was headed and it scared the living hell out of me. Uh, physical things started to happen. I felt like I was going to throw up and I, w- I went to the washroom and I felt like I was going to throw up so I'd lean in front of the bowl. And then I felt like I had to go, so I turned around and sat down on the ball. And then I felt like I had to... Now, this required me to make several split-second decisions. <laughs> I mean, you make the wrong one, you mess up. I mean, you mess up. Finally, I just gave up and laid down on the floor in my bathroom. And I was going to the washroom, and I was vomiting. And uh, I, wasn't a, I wasn't really a puker when I was drinking. I only puked from drinking uh, about five times in the, all the years I drank. I remember the first time it happened, you know, as was talked about last night. Uh, I didn't say to myself, Jesus, I'm never going to drink that stuff again if it makes you puke. I said, there's got to be a way of doing this without puking. If I can just find it, I'll be all right. But there I am, uh, laying on my bathroom floor, and I, I was going to the washroom, vomiting. I couldn't breathe, and it was all happening at the same time. And my young bride of three months walked in the wash to the washroom opened the door, took one look at me laying on the floor, and she said, what a catch. No, she didn't, believe me. (laughs) Yeah, I want to bear his children. Yeah, we're going to have a great family. That night on my bathroom floor, I suddenly got very interested in God. Now, I I said my first sincere prayer that night. Um, Now, I'd only really gotten into prayer seriously, wholeheartedly, in the backseat of police cars. That was about the only time that I really wanted to get close to God. And you know how the prayer went. God, if you get me out of this one, I'll never... Oh, you too. Never do it again. I promise. I won't. And there was always a bargain. You know, God, if you do this for me, I'll do that for you. And if you do... Like, I'm going to help the old guy out now. Isn't he lucky? (laughs) Really in a position to do that. Uh, but that night there were no bargains, there were no deals. I was experiencing uh, what I believe to have been the first sensations of dying. I know a little bit about that. I've never had a near-death experience. Uh, I've never had an out-of-body experience. I have had out-of-mind experiences in society, <laughs> not out-of-body. But uh, I know a little bit about those sensations because when I had been sober in Alcoholics Anonymous for two years, I hung myself in my basement. Uh, so I know what it's like to be in AA and want to die. Unsuccessful hanging, obviously. I'm standing here. Uh, what happened was... I'm talking about suicide, Rob, and they're laughing. You didn't tell me they'd be like this. <laughs> what, I, what I did was I took a belt and I put it around my neck and I jumped off, put it around a beam in the basement and jumped off the stairs. And uh, it was one of those damn elastic belts and I just kind of bounced around like this for a little... <laughs> Liz, I'm not even talking about sex and you're laughing like that. <laughs> you say, surely you jest. Yes, I do. It, it wasn't an elastic belt. It was a pair of booster cables for a car, and I did almost die. 
I have no explanation as to how I got out of that, but the same sensations I was experiencing that night on my bathroom floor. And that night, as one of my dear friends in AA says, it seems as if a ticket was placed in my hand, and the ticket said Alcoholics Anonymous admit one. Because that night I had an honest desire to stop drinking. No deal, no bargain. I simply said this. I said, God, please, sir, if you're there, because I didn't know. I said, if you're there, could you see your way clear to help me? I will do whatever it takes to get sober and stay sober the rest of my life. Just please show me what to do and I'll do it. My wife took me to the hospital and they shot some stuff in me. I came home and hallucinated in their arms for four or five hours. I was just 20 days past my 23rd birthday and uh, I was finished. Um, I woke up that next morning <laughs> in a headspace I had never been in before. I'd been close, but never there. Uh, and I sat down on the floor and I opened, I pulled a book down from the shelf and it was the book Alcoholics Anonymous. It had been on that shelf for a year. It had been a year since I'd stolen it from a local AA group. <laughs> I was having trouble with the honesty part of Alcoholics Anonymous. Well, I figured, well, maybe I should have that book, but I'm not going to fork out any dough for it. I mean, come on. <laughs> so uh, I tell anyone here, uh, if you're new and you can't afford a big book and you can't find anyone to give one to you, Find out where they're keeping them. Slide over there and steal yourself one this weekend. Uh, it's okay. We have a step later on. You can come back and make up for it. Uh, you know, this Big Book Study Weekend is about the only place I can say that and people clap. I say that sometimes somewhere and I see the treasurer in the back rows having a heart attack. Jesus, he doesn't steal a book. Never having him back here again, damn Canadians. I went back and made amends for that book, uh, but uh, I'm glad I had it that morning. That group got along fine without it. I don't think I'd have made it through my first hours of sobriety without it. I didn't know anything about the big book, but I was drawn to it. And I opened the book, and I read these words. And uh, my very first morning, just sober hours, from the forward to the first edition, where it says, We of Alcoholics Anonymous are more than 100 men and women who have recovered from a seemingly hopeless state of mind, obsession, and body, allergy, alcoholism, the twofold illness, to show other alcoholics precisely how we have recovered is the main purpose of this book. And that has become the main purpose of my life. And those words, some years later, were to be the beginning of my changed life. The book Alcoholics Anonymous, which is what we're studying this weekend, is an awesome, awesome, perfect document. And some of us don't realize this for a long time in AA. I knew none of this for six years in AA. It took uh, two years to get rid of the first 5,000 copies of the big book. Today we sell 5,000 copies every 36 hours. Today we sell 1,200,000 copies of that book each and every year, and it is leveled off at that. The book we're studying this weekend has now become the second best-selling hardcover book ever printed in human history. Now, did you hear that? The big book, Alcoholics Anonymous, is the second best-selling hardcover book ever printed in the history of mankind. Second only to a book or a collection of books known as the Bible. Uh, and I don't know if you know this, but the Bible's been off the press a lot longer since, than since 1939. Um, what is in this book 
to have that kind of a sales record. And what's odd about this is it's aimed at a very small sector of the population, alcoholics. You can't buy it at a bookstore. You must go to an Alcoholics Anonymous group, a weekend like this, a central office, some kind of AA entity, in order to buy it. And yet it has outsold all others but the Bible. This book is the granddaddy of every other anonymous fellowship and every other 12-step program. It doesn't go back, folks, any further than this. And so often, goofballs like me in AA think that Alcoholics Anonymous is just the beginning. It's a springboard into all these other outfits. Which, And I did that. Uh, when really it's not. A lot of those other outfits, I'm, I'm pretty convinced that one of the reasons God has a lot of those other outfits there is for alcoholics who don't know they're alcoholics yet to go there first and get a springboard into Alcoholics Anonymous. That's what I think. A guy named Wesley Parrish is dead now. Great AA member. I never met him, but he impacted my life through people that he had impacted. He used to start some of his meetings that he'd talk. He'd say, I'm Wesley, I'm an alcoholic. That's would say, I'm Wesley. And he'd say, this year is the book Alcoholics Anonymous. I hope one day it catches on in our fellowship. <laughs> and then he'd start to talk. Um, it's amazing that it's so often ignored in our fellowship. When we owe our name to the big book, we owe the size and span of our fellowship to the big book. We owe everything to the book Alcoholics Anonymous. And the big joke in Winnipeg always had been, you want to hide a $1,000 bill from an alcoholic? Put it in his book. <laughs> Hell, he'll never look there. You don't need to worry. He won't find it. I didn't know any of this for some time. I started going to meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous again immediately. And as I always had done before, I read the steps on the wall. And uh, I thought if you agreed with them, it was the same as doing them. And, I mean, I agreed with sometimes two or three at one meeting. You know, it was just great. Uh, however, I did find out that if you work the steps off the wall, you get off the wall results. And uh, that's what happened to me. I started going to meetings right away. And... Uh, I knew that there was only one way for me to work this program, and that was precisely the way it's laid out in this big book. But I don't know why it happened or where it came from, but things that I heard and things that I ended up saying in meetings, uh, most of the meetings I went to were these, uh, as was mentioned this weekend, these group depression meetings, where, you, I mean, you, not, you need a meeting to get over the meeting, but by the time you leave there, you're just feeling awful. And, and I, I, I do think they should hand out revolvers on the way out of those meetings. You know, have a nice day. Here you go. Uh, not all discussion meetings are like that. I'm not meaning to imply that. But a lot of the ones that I went to it were like that. So uh, I had heard this 90 meetings in 90 days, so I went to 90 meetings in 30 days, three meetings a day for a month. And then I went to two meetings a day for six months. And then I went to seven to ten meetings a week for the next four years. Nothing great happened. I just attended a bunch of meetings where other alcoholics were sitting around drinking coffee, smoking cigarettes, and talking. What I didn't know then, but I know now, I can sit in the chicken coop every night for 20 years. It won't make me a chicken. I might smell like one, but it won't make me a chicken. Uh, I can sit in an AA club room forever. From now this night on, and that will not make me a recovered alcoholic. If I want to recover from alcoholism, there are certain things I was going to have to do. And for me, it's have to do, because I'm a very serious alcoholic. Uh, if I were to ever go back drinking, it would kill me in a very short period of time. Uh, so there I was in all these meetings, and I started doing what I thought were the 12 steps. 
And I just, you know, every time I hear, uh, you know, Joe and Charlie talk about these different guides and stuff, I just, I mean, it it just kills me because uh, the first time I did the steps from the big book, or I, I mean, I thought I was doing the steps. I had the, it ended up, I did what I thought were the steps three times. Uh, but they weren't the steps of Alcoholics Anonymous because I didn't get the results that it promises. They, I had, like when I got down to my inventory, I had the big book, the 12 on 12, the Hazelden guide, the Compcare guide, the Al-Anon guide, the EA guide, the NA guide. I had more guides and defects, for God's sake, you know. And I mean, I come, I, every time I came out of that experience, uh, not very well. I, uh, was suffering from untreated alcoholism, and I entered into a state of what I call white-knuckle sobriety. I, I know none of you here in since the Cincinnati area have ever experienced that, but that's where you're that's where you're hanging on so tight that your knuckles are turning white. You know, how are you today, Blaine? I say, fine! Why? You know, walking around, this is not how to win friends and influence people. I was not feeling good. And the longer I was sober, the worse I felt. All I knew was I couldn't drink. I thought I had done everything Alcoholics Anonymous said that I should do, and I'm losing my mind. I got sicker and sicker in sobriety, and one day I was a very violent young man, and uh, one day I was driving down the road and a woman cut me off, which happened frequently, and I did, I mean, I thought it was a conspiracy, you know. They find out my route, and then they get together, and they, this is a day before cell phones, so they really had to work at it. Uh, <laughs> They find out my route, they cut me. I always took it as a personal, it just went through my gut like a knife. How dare them? Don't they know who I am, for God's sake? So I did what I always did. I chased her down with my car. I stopped her car, which, and I got out to go and talk to her, which was usual, except this time I had a three-foot pipe filled with concrete. And I went over to talk to her about the fact that she wasn't treating me with the respect due somewhat of my stature. She didn't like what I had said to her, and... Some things happened, and her car got damaged. That night, I came out of my home group, one of the last people out of my home group, and I stuck the key, and there's nobody around, parking lot empty, and I stuck the key in the door of my car, and cops came out of the garbage bins, around the corner, down the street. There was three marked cruisers, three uh, ghost cars, and um, to my recollection, there was six or eight I mean, there was a lot of these huge policemen. Now, I'm six foot two. I can tell you, they did not send any vertically challenged police officers out to capture me that night. Because in a matter of three seconds, my head was on the car. They were <clears throat> putting a cut. Oh, I'm going to jail now. He thinks that's funny. <laughs> They're putting the cuffs on me and reading me my rights. We're always an example in AA, ladies and gentlemen, either of what to do or of what not to do. And the sad thing about this story is three brand new members of AA, I mean brand new, were walking out of the club room. And they looked over at me, and I know what they were thinking. <clears throat> Boy, that AA really works there, doesn't it, Blaine? You know? yeah. If you want what we have. Yeah. So I, I waved to them. I said, keep coming back. It gets better. <laughs> I didn't. I wanted to die. They threw me in jail. They did not treat me well there, and I have not had a, de a desire to go back since. <clears throat> Two weeks after that, I was incarcerated in the mental hospital. I lost my mind for a month in sobriety. When I checked out, it was summer. When I came to, the leaves were on the ground. Yeah, I know a little bit about what happens to people like me 
who, for whatever reason, don't do the steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. I don't know about you, but people like me, this is what happens to us. <clears throat> and I didn't know my name. I didn't know what day it was. The only thing, I'd lost my mind. It was gone. That was for sure. <laughs> uh, I don't. I was like a blackout for a month. Not from drinking, though. Uh, the only thing I hadn't lost was my sense of humor, apparently, because that, when I was being admitted into the hospital, apparently the, the nurse taking all the pertinent information, like your mother's maiden name and all that, and, and she looked at me and she said, Mr. Dell, have you ever had problem with constipation? And I looked at her and I said, yes, I have. She said, have you ever taken anything for it? And I looked her right in the eye and said, Fibermed cookies changed my life. And, and I just kind of checked out. Couldn't have a conversation with anybody. One day in the mental hospital, after some time, uh, the nurse came and asked, oh, every day she would come and say, Blaine, what day is it? And I'd say, Monday. She'd say, no, Blaine, no. Now think, what day is it? I'd say, Thursday. I mean, if you do that often enough, you're going to hit the right day. There's only seven of them, you know. I had no clue. And one day I just came to like this. And uh, she said, what day is it? And I smiled at her and I said, it's Tuesday. And it was Tuesday. It's been a long time since I knew what day it was. You see, when they put me into that mental hospital <clears throat> with two years of physical sobriety, my wife, young bride, asked the three doctors who put me in when I would be getting back to normal. And they looked at her and said, we're sorry, ma'am. We don't know if he's ever coming back. Such was the state of affairs in my life <clears throat> in August and September of 1984. I went out and saw the doctor. He said, I don't believe it's real. Your brain, your, your brain is playing tricks on you, Blaine. You need to come and see. He said, keep coming back. And he made me come see him for two or three times a week for some time. About a year later, I stopped in to see this doctor just to say hello. And yeah, I'm just, I happen to be walking by the nuthouse, so I'll stop in and say hello. <laughs> He looked at me and he said, Blaine, you are a medical marvel. He said, we have absolutely none of us have any, any explanation as to how you got well. It was all of our opinions that you would be on massive doses of medication for the rest of your life just to live on the outside of the walls of a mental institution. And he didn't know what had happened to me and I didn't know for a long time. And I found out later that my bride, Ilhan, had asked all the AA members who had not run away from me, and all of her beautiful Al-Anon friends to please pray for me. And I was literally, folks, prayed out of the mental hospital. The prognosis for people who have been diagnosed with what I was diagnosed with is not good. Um, I entered into more therapy. I've been to psychiatrists and psychologists and social workers. I've been to treat... I have nothing against treatment. I've been there four times myself. I, uh, treatment is, is sometimes helpful. It's just not a prerequisite for recovery. The 12 steps from this book are a prerequisite for my recovery. And so I've been to cognitive behavioral therapy. I've been to uh, all kinds of therapy. My wife and I went to uh, see, went for marriage counseling. We went to see a marriage counselor, and shortly after that, she got a divorce. Not my wife. The marriage counselor got a divorce. <laughs> Uh, I'm running around to all these people who think they know how to fix somebody like me. Uh, well-meaning people, don't get me wrong. They're, they're very well-meaning people and they want to help people. And I'm sure they help people somewhere, some of the time. But they don't have the kind of power that's necessary to change someone like me. 
On April the 25th, 1986, after all the therapy and all the treatment and all the counseling and all the fix-your-own-head books and everything that was available, I woke up that morning in the, in the pit of depression deeper than I had ever been all those years before. See, I went for all this help in sobriety. This wasn't when I was drinking I was seeing the shrinks. This was after I sobered up. Because drinking's not my problem, folks. You heard it this weekend. Sobriety is my problem. It's the spaces between the drunks that are driving me nuts. <laughs> and if you can fix that, I won't have to drink anymore. Thank God that's what the steps from the book Alcoholics Anonymous are designed to do. So that morning I woke up and in my normal state without recovery was I wanted to die. I mean, I really did. This it wasn't like I was just feeling a little blue. I wanted out. I could not stand being me under any circumstances. Drunk. Or so. And that's a sad and scary place to be. It wasn't a matter of, am I going to die? It was, the only question was, was I going to take anybody with me? Because I was crazy. And that was the day that God sent two men into my life who wore the program of Alcoholics Anonymous like an armor. And their names are Joe and Charlie. <clears throat> Life as I knew it ceased to exist on April 25th. <clears throat> 1986. <clears throat> Made it longer than I thought I was going on. <laughs> They're not tears of sadness, folks. They're tears of joy and gratitude. <clears throat> life has never been the same, and as far as I can tell, it's never going to be the same. My life was turned just completely upside down and around that day. I want to tell you a little bit about how I got to Menaki, because, you know, sometimes God does work in very mysterious ways. If Joe and Charlie came to do a big book study in Manaki, Ontario. Manitoba, the first Manitoba big book study is held in the next province. You know, we're drunks. We always do things backwards. Our Tuesday night meeting's on Wednesday night, and we just, we screw everything up. So that's about a three-hour drive from the Winnipeg airport. And I had campaigned against this Manaki big book study. Manaki is a very, very fancy resort. A real fancy place. And uh, I campaigned against it for over a year. I said, what about the little guy? What about the newcomer by God can't afford to go to a fancy place like that? And so when no one was looking, I'd take the posters off the wall for the Manaki Big Book study. <laughs> I need to tell you about the Mel Tillis connection, because uh, I wasn't going to Manaki. I mean, there's just no way. I was dead against it. And the two guys who were supposed to pick up these two Americans, Joe and Charlie, from the airport... Uh, Mel Tillis was in town, and I owe my life in part to Mel Tillis. He came in on Friday, April 25th, 1986, and did a concert in Winnipeg. And the two guys that were supposed to pick them up were big Mel Tillis fans, and God bless them. Because suddenly they went to see Mel Tillis, and the Sunday before the weekend, there was nobody to pick up Joe and Charlie. And Char this fellow John had an almost new car, so he got asked to pick them up. And so I just jumped in and said, okay, I'm going to go too. And uh, I went home and broke the news to my dear bride. <clears throat> uh, you you, you got to picture this, okay? I'm not well. I'm unemployed. I'm unemployable. We're broke. Now, I'm not broke to different people means different things. 
Broke to some people means, well, I had to dip into my retirement savings a little bit that way. No, and I'm not talking about, I'm talking about broke, okay? I'm talking about two kids in diapers and, uh, you know, not having a washing machine and having to wash the diapers by hand. And I'm talking broke. I come home and announce, honey, I'm going to the Manaki Lodge next week and do a big book study. <laughs> Went over like a lead balloon and she said, no, you're not. I said, oh, I am. And and something inside me was driving me and I'd never had this kind of drive before. And she threatened me with everything that weekend. She actually threatened to divorce me if I went to Manaki. She even went, and this is the lowest of the low, she told our therapist on me. <laughs> I'll tell you, boy, did I get it from her? <clears throat> so I rolled up all the pennies and nickels and quarters and dimes and borrowed some money and away I go to Manaki that morning, April 25th, I wake up and I want to die. And we pick up Joe and Charlie at the airport and we start heading out. We get out on the highway and I look over at Charlie. Now, I went there for two reasons. One was to try and talk these two fellas out of going around talking about the big book. <laughs> okay, that morning I want to die, and now tonight I'm going to straighten them out. Yeah, that's how it works. Because, you see, the big book is very old. It was written in 1939, and I had that idea we, we talked about today on uh, uh, about material progress being so slow. I thought we were so much more intelligent than people in the past. Therefore, a, an old book from 1939 couldn't possibly be relevant to an alcoholic today. I'd done it. It didn't work. I'm still crazy as hell. So obviously, it doesn't work. <coughs> and uh, it, the big book discriminates against women and young people, of which I was one. I'll let you figure out which. So... We get in the car, and we get out on the highway, and I look over at Charlie, and really my opening statement to Charlie is this. <laughs> Never met the man before. I said, so, Charlie, what do you think of medical science proving the big book wrong? Yeah, must have been the wrong thing to say. <laughs> I mean, that was my biggest bullet, and I let it fly. And uh, he saw me coming, just like I can see him coming today. And he said to me, laid back, he just leaned back in the bed. He said, oh, it has, has it? Hmm. I said, well, certainly. I'm excited now because I know stuff he doesn't know. <laughs> I said, well, certainly. I said, even our own literature, the booklet Living Sober, tells us that alcoholism's not an allergy, which it does on page 69 of that book. Uh, I don't know about you, but I put that book away because I had formed, because of some information in that book and my own ideas, and it was not a physical allergy. I had formed a little, I'd been thinking. <laughs> and after about seven years of this particular therapy, if there's no physical side to alcoholism, it's all a problem of mental control. I should be able to drink safely. I'm in no hurry. But after about seven more years, I'm going to go at it. I'll be the guinea pig and I'll try it. Dangerous. You see, there was the obsession starting on me, setting me up for a drink seven years from that day. It's very insidious, very sneaky, and very powerful. Anyway, he said, oh, it does, does it? I said, yes, it does. And he said, well, we'll have to, we'll have to see about having that changed. I said, because, Blaine, uh, the whole reason we have, I have to work the rest of the steps is because I'm physically allergic to alcohol. Now I knew I had him, boy. Now I knew I had him. Because for six years, no one had ever been able to answer this question for me that I had ever met in AA, what is the allergy? They all said what I said, if anyone asked me. The big book says it, believe it. 
Oh, it's in there. It's what, that's what it says. We're not really allergic. That's just what we say. You know, it's just a way to describe it, and uh, etc. And then Charlie said words that were going to change my life. And he said, Blaine, what that means is that when I take alcohol into my system, I physically crave more alcohol, and I can't stop drinking until I'm in a hell of a shape. In an instant like this, I went back in my mind through my entire drinking career. And immediately I said, my God, that's what happens to me. That's what's wrong with me. And I was 12-stepped after being in AA for six years. I finally found out what the hell was wrong with me. And, uh, well, then I started asking questions because, uh, and my tone changed, I can tell you. <laughs> I, I said to him, I said, where are you getting all this information anyway, Charlie? <laughs> he said, in the front of a book called Alcoholics Anonymous, uh, there's a section called The Doctor's Opinion. And, of course, the great disservice that we did when we took the doctor's opinion out of page one and put it in Roman numerals is that an unlearned man like me with a grade nine education doesn't read much. And if I have to read two things, I'm not going to read a book without pictures. (laughs) And I'm sure as hell not going to read anything in Roman numerals. And I missed step one. It's really difficult to work, try to work, attempt to work steps two to twelve without having step one. There's no way that I can work those steps 2 to 12 with the fervor necessary to recover without understanding how close to death I am. Okay? To have alcoholism is a death sentence, folks. This isn't a game. This isn't like I have a cold, and if I leave it alone, it's going to go away after a week or two. This is a deadly, killer illness that's progressive. It kills people or drives them insane 100% of the time. We were talking over supper. Alcohol in, in our in North America, and I dare say all over the world, the death, the destruction, the broken lives, the cost to societies from alcohol is more than every other drug you can think of combined. And alcoholism is very rampant. It's very rare in Canada. I'm one of the few that have it, but it's... <laughs> It's a, it's not rare in Canada, I can tell you. It's a killer illness. And until Charlie sh- and Joe shared that information with me, when they did, I realized how close to death I had been this past six years. And I didn't even know it. Folks, I was that far. That close. And I had no clue. Because no one I knew in AA even knew what the hell alcoholism was. It's not their fault. They just didn't know. It's not like they kept a secret from me. I didn't know either. What did I tell people? Those same things. I was guilty as more than a lot of people. And that weekend, I want to tell you something, because I may probably never get an opportunity to talk at a big book study like this again. And this is very, now you know why it's so very special to me. One of the things that uh, struck me when uh, we walked into that uh, fancy... Oh, Jesus, here it goes again. When we walked into that fancy place, Menachie, we were late because we had to drive through a blizzard. It was April 25th. These guys from Arkansas already think Canada's cold. We don't need a blizzard on April 25th to prove it to them, but there was one. So we were late, and everybody, we walked in, and everybody was sitting at these round tables. And I went 
part of the reason I went to Menaki was to rub shoulders with the big guys in AA. If I was with them, people would stand up and take notice. By God, I wanted them to think, take up, take, stand up and take notice, because then they'd think I'm something. And maybe if someone else thought I was something, I would think I'm something, because I know I'm nothing. And we walked in there, and I guess Charlie knew he had, <laughs> he had a hook, line, and sinker, and he tapped me on the chest, and he said, "You stick with us. We want to eat supper." It's been a long time since anyone in AA wanted to do anything with me. And uh, two people had to give up their spot at this table. And they were sitting like up here to do the study. And the, the table they were sitting at for supper was a round table right in front. And two people had to give up their seats so that this John and I could sit with Joe and Charlie for supper. And they absolutely changed my life. The thing that struck me was, for the first time in Alcoholics Anonymous, now I know we all have feet of clay. Don't put any of us up on a pedestal because we'll let, let you down sooner or later. But at that point in my life and still to this day, it, it is unmatched in that. Here was were walking paradoxes. Uh, first time I'd met people who had what I wanted. I mean everything I wanted. They were deadly serious about the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. Because at that time in the mid to late 80s, there was like a couple of three years where they did 40, 45 of these things a year. They were busy. They were very deadly serious about it, but they were laughing all the time. Um, they were the most knowledgeable people about our 12-step program and our fellowship that I had ever met, but they were the most humble human beings I had ever met. And they really attracted me. Their deportments really attracted me. And I remember saying that weekend, God, if you could give me 10% of what these guys seem to have, I'll take it. I mean, I'm not asking for good days if they just all couldn't be quite so bad, you know, because they were bad days. They were dark days in my life. And anyway, we went through the weekend and just want to tell you two things. One is about the miracle of Manaki for me personally. On a Saturday afternoon like we were here, uh, they had been talking about recovery and what precise big book recovery is, is that we had found much of heaven and had been rocketed into this fourth dimension of existence of which we had not even dreamed. And I, there it was like they had a, ra a carrot in front of this rabbit's nose. They were dangling the carrot of recovery in front of my nose, but I couldn't have it because I had a real bad resentment against my dad. And uh, I knew that, that that is what has really been holding me back all these years in AA. And I went up to Charlie after the Saturday afternoon. They finished off resentments like they did today. And I went up to Charlie and I said, Charlie, you said that 90-some percent of the resentments would be taken care of in this way. He said, wait a minute. I said, my resentments. I don't know about your resentments. You see how we hear in Alcoholics Anonymous, how we listen? I say, this is what I have to do. And some drunk thinks, he was trying to tell me. That, that's not what I was trying to, that's not, you know, you say hickory dickory dock and the person hears hick dick dock and they come up and say, well, I disagree. And, you know, anyway, I said, no, no, Charlie, I'm not, you know, I mean, I wasn't trying to argue with him. I was deadly serious. I said, it's exactly the same with me, but I have a, I have a resentment against my dad and it's killing me. And my problem is, I'm so glad they covered this today. I can't see where I set the ball rolling. When I was born and come, came home in, in November of 1959, my dad just didn't like me. He never liked me. 
And him and I did not have a good relationship. I'm not singing the blues. There's a lot of people that I know personally that have had a lot worse childhoods than I have. Uh, so, you know, it's not that. But this was the resentment that was killing me, and I couldn't see where I had set the ball rolling. Therefore, I thought, I couldn't have it removed. Therefore, I would die. And uh, I said, uh, what do you think I should do, Charlie? He said, Blaine, there's two things that you need to know, and I'll never forget. It's as if it happened last night to me. He said, one is we're all born with a desire to love our parents. We need to love our parents, and if we don't, we never feel right inside. And that's true. And he said, the other thing you need to know, Blaine, is whatever your dad did to you, he did not do it to you. He would have done it to me if I was born in your place. It had nothing to do with you. He's a spiritually sick human being. And I said, uh, now, therapist been trying to talk to me about this problem. I mean, I had it coming out of my ears. But the difference here was this. It was one alcoholic sharing with another alcoholic through the language of the heart. And that's what made the difference. That's the language we speak in Alcoholics Anonymous. Bill said the language of the heart is the only language alcoholics understand. What comes from my head goes out the ceiling and means nothing. But what comes from one heart goes right into another heart. That's why at World Conventions of Alcoholics Anonymous, you can have people from all over the world meet someone from Germany. And, you know, all they can say is, Bill, yeah, and that's all, you know. But we can talk in our different verbal languages and we connect here. And that is the language of the heart. And I felt it. And I said, Charlie, do you think I should go and do a 551 on that? That prayer in the back of the book. And he said, yeah, that'd be a good idea. So I went back and collected up all my papers. And see, I knew I didn't have enough money to buy tapes for the weekend. So I was trying to write down everything they said. <laughs> and uh, the topic of conversation at the dinner table seemed to be the uh, effect it was having on Blaine. I was like, I needed a conference-approved seatbelt. You know, I mean, I was just right. I was, I was excited, folks. When you have a problem that's been killing you, and you find the answer, there is no stopping. So I went, I went back, collected up my briefcase and all the papers I had, and people said to me, Blaine, we're going to go for a walk on the golf course. It's a very fancy resort, and we're going to do this and we're going to do that. I said, Oh no, I've got some step four work to do. And they looked at me and said, one woman looked, and she said, well, do you have to do it now? And I thought, my God, don't you know that this is killing me? That's what I thought. I said, yes, I have to do it now. And I went back to my room. I shut off the lights. I got into bed and put the covers over me. And I said that 551, 552 prayer. And I asked that God give my dad everything I wanted for myself. I, for the first time in my life, I prayed for his health, his happiness, his prosperity, contentment, serenity, and peace of mind. And I did that for two hours solid. Something happened to me. I physically felt something turn over inside of me, and something left me. And it was the resentment against my dad. <clears throat> it's never come back. I continued to do that prayer for some weeks just to make sure, because, I mean, it was a bad resentment. <laughs> and these fellows are right. If you've got a resentment you don't want to be free of, <laughs> don't do that, because it's going to go. And everyone that I share that with and working with drunks and sponsoring people and sharing at meetings, you know, they'll come back after a couple of weeks and say, do you know that works, Blaine? <laughs> yeah, I know it works. 
with that done, I was able to go through the, re- the steps with all the rest of my resentments and all the garbage that I had. I came back from, I said to Charlie, uh, asking him all these questions, and he said to me Saturday, about the middle of the afternoon, he said, Blaine, I, we can't teach you everything we know about the big book in one weekend. I guess, you know, I wouldn't let him alone. And uh, He said, but I'll tell you what, if you will go home and you will read this book and study this book and do what it says, eventually you will know everything that we know. I know that hasn't happened yet because I'm doing an awful lot of writing this weekend while Joe and Charlie are up here talking, but a little bit more than I knew then. So it's important to study the book. It's important to read the book. It's important to talk about this book. But, folks, the most important thing is to do it, is to apply it. If we don't apply it, we don't have a good recovery happening. And any little storm of life that comes along could destroy us. And we we need to apply it. Once it is applied and we have an entire personality change, we want to talk about it to anyone who will listen for any period of time. Because it's some fantastic stuff, I can tell you. I came back from Anaki with the two most important books in AA, in, in my view. That's the big book and a dictionary. Because there was a lot of words I didn't know. And I find now today I'm looking up words that I looked up five years ago, but I've forgotten the definition of and I'm looking them up again. And that's fine. I love it. I love to study the book. I love to find out what it says so that I can apply it to my life. We started the study. I, I did what I did was I did the steps precisely the way they're laid out in the book. Nothing more, nothing less, nothing else. Just what it said to do to the best of my ability. I came out of that experience an entirely different person, and no one was more surprised than me, folks. Now my wife Ilhan, she was in Al-Anon. I spent two years. I spent two years trying to get her into Al-Anon, and four years trying to get her out of Al-Anon. <laughs> I don't know if you've uh, ever experienced that, but that Al-Anon can really screw up the alcoholic, I tell you. Because she was learning stuff that was making me have to deal with my own stuff. She wasn't trying to fix me anymore. And uh, anyway, the long and the short of it was six months later, we went to Brainerd, Minnesota, the big book study. And for the next few years, if Joe and Charlie were anywhere within five or eight hundred miles from Winnipeg, we would load up cars with newcomers and we would go. Whether the newcomers wanted to get sober or not, whether they wanted to go to the Big Book Study Weekend or not, we took them. And we enjoyed every minute of it. And we went to this Brainerd one, and I was just wondering if, if, geez, I wonder if Joe and Charlie would even remember me, would remember us. And Joe did, and then I walked up, Charlie was sitting there, I walked up to Charlie, and I said, Hi, Charlie, it's uh, Blaine from Winnipeg. You probably don't remember me, but we started a group, and we've got nine people here with us. And he jumped up, and Charlie is usually a pretty reserved guy. You know, he jumped up and he said, now I'm going to try and get the Arkansas accent. Watch. He jumped up and said, I knew it. I knew it. He said, I told Joe when we left Winnipeg. I don't know if I've got it or not, but I told Joe when we left Winnipeg. I don't know if we got to anyone in this town, but we sure lit a fire under their ass. (laughs) And it's never gone out. It burns as strong today, maybe stronger than ever. So uh, my wife went to that big book study weekend six months after I did as an Al-Anon member and came out a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. Because of the description of alcoholism in the doctor's opinion and the way it was explained, she realized that though she had only drink, she always compared her drinking to me and mine. And she looked at me and I was further progressed than her. 
Which is the problem if we compare ourselves with someone who's further progressed. What do we say? <laughs> Not that bad. Can't be alcoholic. Never happened to me. Can't be alcoholic. But she realized that though she only drank three times in the last year, every time she drank, she wanted to drink more. And she had the physical allergy. And she had the obsession because she would look just like any alcoholic, just like me, would look very much forward to the next episode or the next time that we could drink. And she's been a member of Alcoholics Anonymous now for uh, since, oh, it's uh, ten and a half years. And she is a power in Alcoholics Anonymous. She's helped a lot of women, and, and she's a fine lady and gives a hell of a talk. I hope someday that you folks can meet her. Some of you have met her. She was in French Lake when we met you, Rob. Uh, just a great gal. I live a life today that's beyond my wildest expectation. Something better than the best I had ever known. And uh, it wasn't always that way, as I've shared. We started studying the book one paragraph at a time. And a group grew out of that. And another group grew out of that. And uh, I've been accused of being aggressive with these things. I, I wish you wouldn't take it that way. But what I've done is I've brought some packets along. There's about 50 of them. And it's just a guide on how we study the big book one paragraph at a time. And it's worked well for us. I mean, nothing's written in stone. Groups have taken. There's now over 30 groups like this using the same basic format across North America. And uh, it's not written in stone. that You can change and alter what you want. It's just a format because I had no clue. When I got back to Winnipeg, what, what, I, what I used to call a big book study was you would read 17 pages or a chapter, whatever came first, and then you would discuss it. I can't remember what you read 15 minutes ago. God, I might remember the last sentence, maybe the last two. And so we did that, and, and uh, I'm a member of the I want to tell you I have a home group. I'm not some guy that goes talking places and is not a, does not have a home group. I have a home group. I'm not a floater in AA. When I was a floater in AA, and God was my sponsor, I wasn't doing very well. Uh, I have a home group, and I'm committed to that home group. And we meet once a week on Tuesday nights, and unless there's a funeral and it's mine, I'm there. Or, or well, twice a year I have to miss a meeting because I'm out of town at an AA weekend somewhere, and it's been somehow extended, or I might be sick with a cold or a flu, and, and, but I'm there. I go to more meetings than that. We go to other big book studies, and when we're asked to talk in the city, we I mean, we're, we're very active. But that's my home group. Come hell or high water, I'm there, and I just love my group, and I love... It's maybe not the best group in the world, but it's my group. And it's where I can be myself. And I can talk about this book from my heart in a way that I can't do at a discussion meeting. I just can't do it at a discussion meeting. And uh, we've had a lot of problems. been called names over the years and uh, because we talk about the big book and, and love the big book so much. And that just happens. If you stick your head above the crowd in AA this far, folks... Someone is going to take a shot at you. So if you want everyone to like you, forget about the big book. <laughs> because they're not going, some aren't going to. You can't please everybody. All I know is what it, what it has done to me and what it has done for me. Um, my wife and I and our two children, Sarah and Michael, live a life that is just, it's wonderful. Not perfect. All four of us screw up sometimes. You get four people in one house. Uh, someone's going to get spiritually sick from time to time. Hopefully not all four do at the same time. Uh, but, you know, we are. But we're committed. We've studied the big book together as a family. Sarah is a member of Alateen. 
And uh, after her second meeting, she came back and said, Dad, they keep, te- they keep treating me like I'm a newcomer in Alateen. And I said, oh, yeah? She, they, she said, yeah, they don't realize I've been on the big book all my life. <laughs> See, that little girl was two when I went to Menaki. She's 13 now. And she used to, she was so tiny, she would come running after Menaki. She would come running up, and hear her little steps. She'd knock on my bedroom door in the morning. Say, Daddy, you playing? I said, yeah, Daddy's praying. She'd say, you want your big book? And I'd say, yeah. And down, she would run downstairs and get my big book and bring it up. Happy to do it. And that little girl in 1990, it was a, a weird experience for me. I know it had nothing to do with me, but... uh I had never talked at a roundup a conference or anything like that, and I got asked to, to talk at this meeting at the World Convention in Seattle. Not a big meeting. There was three to 500 people in the room. And I, I realized that ego made me say yes to that AA commitment. And uh, that, that morning I woke up that I was to talk. I realized it was ego that made me say yes, and this was, this was not the level at which to be fooling around with self-will. And I was scared. I couldn't eat my breakfast. I... Actually, I ate a little bit and vomited. I was so scared. I phoned home to see how the family was, and little Sarah said to me, Daddy, we're praying for you that you give a good talk. And she said the same thing to me when I talked to her this afternoon. See, we have an Alcoholics Anonymous home. It's based on the big book and based on love and respect. We are so fortunate in AA to come from where we come from to have the ability and the resources here in this book to be able to live a life like this. Our little son, Michael, is 12. When I went to the nut house, Ellen was pregnant with him. You know, sometimes we hear that I never hurt anyone with my drinking. I just have to stay sober. That's enough of an amend. Sometimes we hear white, uh, white-knuckled sobriety will never hurt. As long as you're physically sober, it won't hurt anybody. Well, my white-knuckled sobriety, Ellen was pregnant with Michael when I lost my mind and went to jail and all this stuff. Little Sarah was a baby, and she was pregnant with Michael, and she couldn't hardly eat when this happened. A few months later, a month before Michael's due date, she went to see the doctor. on it. She wasn't supposed to go that day, and she happened to go that day, and she was taken to the hospital. She had preeclampsia, and they did an emergency cesarean section, and I almost lost both of them. Why? Because of the effect of my white-knuckled sobriety on her. It's very important for us folks, when we learn this information, to apply it. I almost lost my son and my wife because of all that had happened as the result of me not doing the steps from the big book. And little Michael's 12 now. And I'm pretty sure he's ready for Alateen, but I'm not so sure Alateen's ready for him. Uh, wonderful kid. He's like a... Oh, he's got a mind like a steel trap. I don't know what he's going to be, but it, whatever God has in store for him, it's going to be good. No trouble making friends. Makes friends with everyone he meets, this guy. We've been to Joe's home and to Charlie's home, and they've welcomed us as a family into their homes. And uh, when we left there, our kids looked at us from the back seat, and they said, Daddy, I wish Charlie was our grandpa. And Barbara was our grandma. And you see, they are. They are. We're a family in Alcoholics Anonymous. And though my dad has uh, some great qualities of his own, that which I did not have in him, God gave me in Charlie. 
And my dad, you know, I went and made amends to him after I wrote him out and I realized I had harmed him. I made the amends. And he said, oh, you weren't any worse than any one of the other kids, Blaine. But there was that one time. There's always that one time in there. The thing that hurt him the most, the, the depth of my selfishness and self-centeredness absolutely astounds me. Because the thing that had hurt my father the most, I forgot. I forgot. And so I made amends for that. And I told him I loved him and I tried to be a better son. He said, you already are by admitting this. And I hugged him. And I've been hugging my dad ever since. And he's almost getting ready to hug me back. <laughs> you know, you get a firm handshake at Christmas whether you need it or not. That's about the extent of physical contact in my family in a nice way. Uh, but but it's pretty good. You know, we have a better relationship probably than any of the other kids. Of all of my, uh, I've come from a family of five kids. If you would have taken a vote 15 years ago, I would have been elected the uh, most likely to commit suicide, the most likely to cause pain and suffering for your parents until the day they die. And my mom has told me that Ilhan and I are the only ones of all their kids that they don't worry about. And that's because of you, and that's because of this book. They don't worry about us. And the other day I was over there and I gave my dad a hug, and sometimes when I tell him to get up, instead of shaking his hand, he says, oh no, it's time for one of them AA hugs again. <laughs> and I hug him. But, you know, if it wasn't for this book, my dad doesn't have very many people that will hug him. And if it wasn't for this book, he wouldn't even have that. And so I'm profoundly grateful. <clears throat> I'm uh, getting ready to close here now. It's been a long day. I know you folks are tired, and I'm almost tired of talking. So I'm going to start winding down. You know, I mean, the problem is my flight tomorrow night's been canceled out of Cincinnati, so I don't leave till Monday morning. Uh, so I could talk for a long time, but I won't do that <laughs> to you good folks here. From a world standpoint, I am a colossal failure. I'm 37 years old, and I do not have the material things that our societies in the U.S. and Canada say that I ought to have by the time I'm 37. But every once in a while, late at night when it's quiet, and I'm in our little AA basement in our modest home there in Winnipeg, I reflect on the fact that I'm married to a gal named Ilhan, and Ilhan loves me unconditionally, and I love her the same way. And I know people personally in AA who would give everything they have just for that. But you can't buy that. That's a gift from God. And I reflect on the fact that these two kids of mine are their top straight-A students. Everything they do, they excel in. Children of people like me, folks, are not supposed to turn out like that. So it's certainly not any credit to me. It's in spite of me that they are like that. And they're doing fine. They're enjoying their childhood as it should be. Uh, I reflect on the fact that I don't owe one cent to anyone anywhere on the planet. And that's because of Alcoholics Anonymous. I don't have a lot of the toys, but everything I have is bought and paid for. And that from a guy, when I was 20 years old, I owed $20,000. That was in 1980. That was 20000 was a lot of money. When I was 22, I owed $42,000. I got news for you newcomers. You know what? If you continually spend more money each year than you make, <laughs> you're going to end up in trouble somewhere down the road. I can only, uh, you know, rob from Peter to pay Paul for so long, and, and it all catches up, and it did. But that straightened out because of this program in this book. 
And I reflect on the fact that I have friends more than I deserve. When I came back to AA, all I wanted was one. If you could just give me one friend. Because I'd used everyone up long before. You know, my, as a friend of mine says, yeah, I only had six friends when I came back to AA the last time. Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde, and the hideous four horsemen. And <laughs> luckily, that's all you need to carry a casket, so you're set, you know. And so late at night, and I'm in my AA basement when it's quiet, I kind of hear the voice of God. Not in a, I mean, they lock me up for hearing voices. Not that kind, but more an intuition than anything else. More in a feeling. The consciousness of the presence of God envelops me. And he seems to say to me, you're doing all right, son. Just keep up the good work. Nothing perfect about you yet, Blaine. You've got a lot of work to do on you, and so do I. But just one day at a time, you're doing okay. You're headed in the right direction. Just keep up the good work. And you see, with approval like that, I don't need the acceptance of anyone here or anywhere else. It's nice if I get it. But I don't need it to be whole, to feel all right. I just, you might look at me and say, yeah, yeah, you said you had a hard time in sobriety, but really, how sick could you have been? All I can do is tell you what I was diagnosed with in sobriety. I have been diagnosed and misdiagnosed over the years. So it gets me when people tell me the big book is not enough. Now, I'm not talking about if you have a heart condition, take your heart medicine. Do the steps from the big book, but take your heart medicine. You know, uh, if you're a true schizophrenic, you take your medicine. I'm not talking about that. The steps won't hurt. In fact, it'll probably help a great deal. But we're not doctors in AA. And a lot of people have died because we've given them misinformation. A fellow in Winnipeg clothes his name phoned up a friend of mine one day and he's talking goofy and he'd only been out of the mental hospital a short period of time. And he's talking goofy and uh, a fellow said to him, you, oh, dad, are, you, are you taking your medicine? He said, no. So we haven't been out of the hospital that long. Did the doctor say it's okay? And, and this fellow has a brain chemical disorder imbalance. He's a true schizophrenic. He said, you people in AA told me I wasn't sober if I was taking my medicine. And George said, wait a minute, Claude. You did not talk to me about that. But it was too late. You see, Claude was too far gone. And Claude took a butcher knife about yay long, and he put it in here, and he pulled it up to there. He survived and is still a sober member of Alcoholics Anonymous, but we almost lost that one. Because some goofball thought he was a doctor. And if you are a doctor, don't practice medicine in AA. Do it at your office. So I want to be very clear on that, what I'm talking about. But sometimes people say that the big book is not enough. You see, a lot of us, when we come to AA, we, we suffer from reactive depression. And what reactive depression is, is because of the way I'm living my life, I'm feeling guilt and shame and remorse, and it's making me depressed. It's the blues. I don't feel so hot. That's reactive depression. But the problem is, when we come to AA with reactive depression, a lot of people think that they have another disorder. So let's not do the steps. Let's go get some Valium or something like that. What I say to people that I work with is I say, okay, look, you might have a brain chemical imbalance. I don't know. But if it's at all possible, unless you're at grave physical risk here, let you and me get down to doing the steps from this book. And once you get down and living in steps 10, 11, and 12 for a little while, then let's take a look at it again and see if it's still a problem. Almost invariably. 
They get down in 10, 11, and 12, and I say, well, how, you know, how's it going? Oh, great, I'm sleeping fine, I'm not depressed, i got a zest for life. All I want to do is talk about this book to anyone who will listen. I say, okay, you don't have one of those other dis- other dis- No, I don't, Christ, that was a ball, a ball of crap, you know. But the thing is, we got to do the steps first in order to find out. How can we go to a doctor all messed up day three of sobriety and ask him to diagnose whatever the hell it is we think we have that's a grave disorder? Can't. Got to clear up those things that have been killing me out of my effort to live on self-will and on the show myself. So sometimes, though, people say that the big book is not enough. I was at a meeting where a guy said, if you study the big book, you will die. Uh, I have a problem with that. <laughs> a big problem. Because I've been diagnosed over the years in, sober- in sobriety and misdiagnosed as being and having several things. I've been diagnosed as a neurotic, psychotic, bipolar, manic depressive, schizophrenic, epileptic, alcoholic, drug addict with a great deal of rage and frustration and a chronic depressive antisocial personality disorder. Now I'm much better now. (laughs) I wouldn't have been. Hard to have a happy-go-lucky life, you know, when you wake up one day and you're all those things. What has been added to my life from that day to this that has affected the kind of change that has taken me, this goofy alcoholic from Canada, from being restless, irritable, and discontented in the extreme, violent, ugly, full of hate. What has taken me from that to being happy, contented, peaceful, and serene sober? One thing and one thing only, folks. It's the steps from this book, Alcoholics Anonymous and nothing else, and steps from nowhere else. In Alcoholics Anonymous, I started going to other fellowships. I joined. I was a member at one time of AA, EA, NA, um, and I joined Al-Anon, and uh, the reason I joined Al-Anon was I couldn't get along with the alcoholics in AA. So I joined Al-Anon <laughs> to try and figure out how to do that. And I was with my wife and I were members of APA, that's Abused Persons Anonymous. It's a fellowship my wife and I founded in Winnipeg and had, had a lifespan of six weeks. Because I had come to believe that the reason I was the way I was was because people had been dumping on me all my life and... Uh, You tell a drunk like me that, I will run with it from here to the East Coast and back. Of course, it's not my fault. I knew that. Everything I've done, not my fault. It's his fault. It's their fault. It's her fault. And I had to start taking responsibility for uh, my own life and where I was and where I am and what I am and responsible, being responsible for how I feel today. If I don't feel good, it's not your fault. It's not anyone else's fault. I need to get back to whatever it is I'm not doing from the big book that I'm supposed to be doing. And it goes on. Contrary to popular belief, it is not the one with the most toys when he dies wins. Success in Alcoholics Anonymous, ladies and gentlemen, is not measured by material things. It is measured by a quiet heart. The one with the quietest heart is the most successful. I used to think, where would I be if these two guys, Joe and Charlie, hadn't come to Winnipeg? What would have happened to me and my family if they would have said, and they could have. I mean, they've been doing this for years. They don't need to do this. What if they would have said, you know, I think I'm going to stay home in my comfortable home this weekend. Their homes are very comfortable. Very comfortable. 
And uh, I think I'm going to, I'm glad they didn't say, I think I'm going to stay home and work on my relationship with my significant other. I'm glad they didn't say that. And they could have. Their wives are beautiful. Beautiful people. They came to Winnipeg to talk to a bunch of drunks they didn't know about a book and a program contained in there that if followed, could one could experience God's will in their life. And I'm so profoundly grateful. But I know they've put up with a lot of flack over the years. And many of you in this room who are big book thumpers, who are big book advocates, uh, may begin to wonder if what you're doing matters with some of the flack that you get. I mean, we were told we couldn't study the big book like this, that it had never been done. It's not AA. You're breaking tradition. It'll never work, and et cetera, et cetera. All those people that tried to shut us down when we started this some 11 years and 20-some days ago, all of those people that tried to shut us down are no longer members of Alcoholics Anonymous. Okay? I am a sober member of Alcoholics Anonymous and happier than I have ever been. Every year gets better and better and better. And if it hadn't happened to me, I never would have believed it, folks, because every year of my sobriety before that, it got worse and worse and worse. They say when the student is ready, the teacher appears. I would have thought I was ready much earlier. But, you know, maybe not. If I had one more answer left, if I had one more idea about what would fix me, maybe I wouldn't have gone for the big book the way that I did. I was toast and I knew it. The big book was the last door, the last house, the end of the last block. I got home and I actually told Elhan, if uh, this doesn't work, I'm getting drunk and staying drunk until I'm dead because I can't go on like this. So you may begin to wonder if what you're doing matters. I want to leave you with this little story. And it's a story about two men that were walking towards each other from opposite ends of the beach. And as they approached each other, the one looked at the other one and he was stopping every few feet. He'd stop and he'd pick something up and he'd examine it and he'd throw it into the sea. And he'd stop and he'd pick something up and examine it and throw it into the sea. And the other fellow, when they got close, closer together, the other fellow said, Excuse me, what are you doing? And the guy said, Well, uh, these starfish here are stranded by the ebbing tide. If they're still here when the sun comes up, they're going to die. I'm just picking them up and giving them another chance at life. And the other fellow looked down on the beach and he said, Man, there's hundreds of miles of beach here and thousands of starfish. Do you really think what you're doing matters? And just then he picked up another one. He threw it into the sea and said, it does to that one. And ladies and gentlemen, if you are involved in big book activity in this fellowship, teaching this book to alcoholics who want to recover in Alcoholics Anonymous, and you ever begin to wonder if what you're doing matters, I want to tell you right here and right now that it does to this one. Because it's that kind of activity that saved my life changed my life dramatically and forever. I thank you for this great privilege of sharing just a little bit of my story with you. I hope that there's someone here who is at the end of their open sobriety. Not that I hope that for you, but you are getting the information this weekend that is going to turn your life upside down. I will guarantee that if you will do this and you will spend your life carrying this message to others, God will grant you a life beyond your wildest expectations. I'll give you a written guarantee tonight because the big book gives me a written guarantee. As Bill said, may the beacon light of Alcoholics Anonymous shine on every distant shore and on every distant land for as long as God should want us. Thank you for having me. Joe and Charlie, thank you for the work that you do in Alcoholics Anonymous. 
AA, the fellowship, was in bad, bad shape a few years ago. And God sent us, you folks, to keep our message pure and clear. And I thank you with all my heart. If we don't keep the message clear in AA, one day AA is not going to be here. Like, what makes me think it's always going to be here just because it was here when I got here? It might not be. And where AA is in 50, 100, or 150 years from now is going to depend on what you and I do with it today. Are we going to keep it clear? Are we going to keep the message? It says in the dust jacket, this is the AA message. Are we going to keep that message in our fellowship? Or, as Bill said, one day will alcoholics look out from their cave and say, my, what a good thing AA might have been. It's too bad they let all those non-alcoholics into those AA meetings. It's too bad they stopped talking about that program. Oh, folks, I have children. Should they or their offspring ever need AA? By God, I want them to be able to come to a place where they can find out exactly what's wrong with them and exactly what they can do about it. And that is the challenge that I give to you. It's uh, the main purpose of my life because nothing else in my life matters as much as this. I will close now. Thank you again. God bless Alcoholics Anonymous. And God bless you all. Thanks a million.